0: Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit.
1: Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. This afternoon, it's my enormous pleasure to have Professor Kate Jeffrey uh, here with me to talk about maps in the brain. Kate is a professor of Behavioural neuroscience, and she'll explain what that means at the U- at University College London, where she founded the Institute of Be- Behavioural Neuroscience, and she runs the Jeffrey Lab. So, Kate, welcome to the GMO Podcast. We're delighted to have you here. I have to say, and I know this is a bit of a corny crack, but um, we sometimes say something's not rocket science or we say you don't need to be a brain surgeon to do this Well, you're not quite a brain surgeon but you are an expert on the brain so it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast it's an honor for me and um, start out by introducing yourself and explaining to our listeners what behavioral neuroscience is.
2: Well thank you It's it's a pleasure to be here um, I, I am actually a brain surgeon in a way, <laughs> because my research does involve brains. Um, so I'm a behavioural neuroscientist. What that means is I'm interested in the brain and how it works at the level of the brain cells, the neurons, um, but interested in how that links to the you know higher level behaviours that the brain does, our thinking and emotions and actions. And so behavioural neuroscience is trying to cross these two. Levels: a very small-scale level and a very large-scale level, and try and understand one in terms of the other.
1: So that would sort of be like the physical and the mental. Um, so how we store memories, for example, because we're that's not like it. computer disks, are we?
2: No, that's right, that's right. It is um, really... There's this very old problem called the mind-body problem, which is how does the physical stuff that we're made of generate the um, ethereal experiences and and, you know thoughts and and things you can't touch (laughs) how how does that happen and I've always been fascinated by that question.
1: And that's what's taken you to maps in the brain or how we understand location and space and direction is that right? That's right yes. So You and I have had a little chat about this beforehand, because otherwise I'd be completely ignorant. And um, Mm -hmm. for the benefit of our listeners, uh, Kate said to me, I said to Kate, rather, I don't want to ask you really stupid questions. And she said, you're probably better off asking me stupid questions, because (laughs) then other people might be able to understand what I do. So I'm going to start with um, how the brain understands place or location. And I wonder if you could explain the basic sort of research and science that you've been doing um, and how that relates to place.
2: Yes. So this this came about because of sort of an accidental discovery um, about the middle of last century when people were interested in memory and how our memories are formed. And it was found... um, because of a very tragic neuropsychological case that came along, that there's a little kind of organ within the brain called the hippocampus that seems to be incredibly important for memory. And then when neuroscientists started to study the hippocampus using animals to try and understand what the neurons were doing, they discovered that the neurons in the hippocampus mostly seemed to be interested in where the animal was. Uh, And by animal, I mean rats, um, and these days mice as well. So there seemed to be this puzzling link between location and memory. And that has led in the succeeding decades to this enormous quest to understand why is this part of the brain so interested in location? Why does it matter where you are? Um, How does it know where you are? And what's that got to do with memory? And why should these two things be linked? And the thinking really is that that during evolution, the things that happen to you happen in places, and so remembering both where you were and what happened, and linking those two things together, is really important for your survival, and that's why this one structure in the brain is doing both of these things.
1: Right. So, so we've got this: the location and memory are sort of intertwined with each other, um, and they, and neurons there are a specific set of neurons related to place, or is it the whole of the hippocampus?
2: So it's they're found um, widely throughout the hippocampus, but depending on which part of hippocampus you look at, you see um, more of these cells or not as many. So it looks like the hippocampus is doing more than one thing. So one part of it is more specialised for space. Another part may be more specialised for emotion, for example. We don't don't fully know um, exactly what it's doing. And and trying to come up with a um, kind of one-size-fits-all explanation for the hippocampus function has been really hard because depending on what you're interested in, it seems to be that the hippocampus is doing that in some way or another. (laughs) So maybe it's not just about space. And and I think thinking is evolving towards it being um, a little bit broader than that, but space is a kind of a a fabric that runs through it, if you like. It's a kind of an organising framework for the other stuff that it's done.
1: So if you put a rat into a maze that's got, say, three or four different rooms in it, um, do different cells start firing off when the rat is in different parts of this maze?
2: Um, Yes, more or less. It, It somewhat depends. Um, And it probably depends on whether the rat itself has recognized that there are multiple rooms or thinks it's just going back into the same room because they all look the same and they're all the same way around and so on. So that there is the potential for confusion. But if that confusion isn't there, then we see a different pattern of activity in the four different locations. Now, sometimes, more often than not, um, a cell, one of these place cells, as we call them, that's active in one of those rooms will also be active in another room, but uh, not in the same place in that room. So that was discovered very early on, and and it made us realise that the the way that the hippocampus is representing space is not one cell for one location. It's more of a um, pattern of cells for each location. So the same cell... Uh, maybe performing a different function than that pattern in different locations. It, it, it's sort of a little bit like the letters of the alphabet. You know, the um, the meaning of a word doesn't arise from the specifics of the letters. It arises from the organisation, the pattern of the letters. Yeah. So, So it's a bit like that. So that's what we call a combinatorial code. And it means that just like with the alphabet, just like we can have hundreds of thousands of words with 26 letters, so we can make maps for many, many, many different places with just the one set of neurons. So it's a very clever and
1: efficient way of and doing for it. For the computer geeks, it's a bit like a binary string, isn't it? Um, if you've got a string of zeros and ones, the order of those zeros and ones completely changes the value of the string. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so we've got place cells, which... Um, in various combinations, um, fire to indicate when uh, the animal recognizes that it's in a place that it's been to previously. Um, And what about direction, which way it's facing? Is that a different set of cells or the same set of cells in different combinations?
2: Yes, that's that's a very interesting question. And um, it took a while to find the answer, we sort of suspected that there had to be some part of the brain that knew which way around the the animal was facing, because you can put a, a rat into a square box, for example, or a, a circular, you know, cylinder, and the the place cells will um, they won't make circular patterns, so you know they're able to make an asymmetric pattern. So something is telling the cells which side of the box is which, for example. So we felt like there had to be some type of um, what you might think of as the sense of direction for these cells. And they were discovered in the in the early 1990s. In fact, the, well, the first report was in the mid-1980s. It took a while to um, really nail down this finding and publish it. But uh, these are cells that become active when the head faces in a particular direction. And they're called head direction cells. And there's an indirect connection between the head direction cells and the place cells that we think is... Um, involved in kind of collating all of the various different sources of information um, and piecing it all together and then passing that to the place cells so they can figure out where they should be active.
1: Wow. So, So you have a set of cells that tells you where you are and then a combination of those cells firing that will give you a sense of direction of which way you're facing. So does that... Um, explain how animals migrate. That's an interesting question. Or is question. that different? Yeah, so so
2: there's a little um, bit of debate about this, or or at least it's not really known yet, because mi- migration is a um, is a very specialised kind of capability that only some animals have. And, but, but many different species do it, and it often takes them over very long ranges, like sometimes thousands of miles. Um, in one case, you know, Arctic terns will migrate from the North Pole to the South Pole and back, which <laughs> seems like a, an unnecessarily long journey. But <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, work going on trying to understand how these how these animals know which direction they should go on their migratory journeys. And it seems like different species use different things. So some will use patterns of the stars and the sun. Some will use the sense of smell. Uh, some of them will you know, use probably um, things that we don't even know how to interpret, like infrasound. So, for example, very, very low-frequency sounds from the ocean or, or something like that. So there are many different sensory uh, types of, of input. And we don't know which parts of the brain are responsible for organising these long-range migratory, um, you know, the the kind of understanding of where to go. And it's probably different parts of the brain in different species. You know, so many animals do it, insects do it, for example, and they have very different brains. So whether the head direction cells, which are responsible for our sort of day-to-day sense of direction, whether those cells are also involved in the migration of the Arctic tern or or whatever, um, we don't know. If I if I had to speculate, I would say possibly not, right. because um, there's some evidence um, from so-called lesion studies, where if you if you um, damage a part of the brain, so you make a what we call a lesion, you can then see uh, what that brain, part of the brain was doing, and um, lesions to the hippocampus don't seem to affect long-range homing in, in homing pigeons, for example. So they can still make their way over really long distances. But what they do have trouble with is when they get near their familiar territory and they're supposed to be finding their loft, then they start looking really lost and they don't manage to get home again. So, um, yeah, so, so I mean, one thing that we have learned is that, that there are um, a number of different types of spatial behaviour and different systems in the brain for these different types. And even for ourselves, when we're navigating... Um, sometimes we might be using the hippocampus, but sometimes we might be using a more automatic system called the striatum, which is more to do with kind of when you're on autopilot. You know that when you're f- yeah. navigating somewhere really familiar, and you don't have to think about it. Um, there's a sort of autopilot in the brain called the striatum that kind of takes over and, and does all the work for you, so that you can think about something else. <laughs> yeah, so maybe- yeah, we have at least two systems, probably more.
1: Exactly, I was about to say it. We're trying to break this down and find one answer to what may be a very complex navigational process, you know where the position of the sun and the smell of the plants nearby, and all of these are clues which the brain is processing but um clearly, there is a part of the brain which is bringing all of this stuff together, and as you get closer to the final destination, so then those place cells and the grid cells start to come into play for that final fine nav- location and navigation. That's
2: right.
1: Okay, so we've talked about animals migrating, we've got terns in there, we've had rats and insects. Um, what about human beings, Kate? Um, how, does, how does what you're discovering transfer to, um, to human beings and the way we understand place?
2: Yeah, So, of course, the first thing that we wondered is, you know, do humans have place cells and head direction cells and so on as well? And we can't, you know, for ethical reasons, do the types of experiments on humans that we would like to. (laughs) (laughs) We're not really allowed to make holes in the skull and implant wires to record single neurons uh, for fun, like for, for scientific research, you know, for pure discovery. But um, actually, people do do that for um, neurosurgical patients. So people who have epilepsy, which is um, so a particular subtype of epilepsy, which involves the hippocampus. And neurosurgeons who are planning to try and deal with the epilepsy surgically will implant microelectrodes into the hippocampus to work out where the damage is. And so these people do have wires in their brains. And... So neuroscientists have gone to the neurosurgeons and said, can we can we eavesdrop on what's going on? <laughs> right. So these people are sitting in, in bed in hospital quite bored often while they're being monitored. And so neuroscientists have given them uh, video games that involve navigating around virtual reality environments and, um, and listening to their neurons and, and seeing whether we have anything that resembles place cells. And indeed, we do. Um, they're pretty similar to... What we see in rats and mice in many respects. Um, and we've also now seen um, some of the other cell types that we've also discovered in, in rats and mice, and particularly a type of cell called grid cells, which are really remarkable because they seem to track how far an animal has walked through space, you know, walked um, through its environment. And um, it looks like we humans also have grid cells. Um, and now we're starting and by we i mean the, the scientific community are starting to also look at animals that are a bit different from us like birds and so on and finding similar things so we think that the at least the vertebrate brain um the fundamentals are pretty similar um, whether you're a bird or a, or a rat or a primate um, and then most recently there's been some very interesting work looking at fruit flies so you know the Those annoying little black flies that Mm -hmm. settle on your compost bin and (laughs) you've got to brush them away. Um, So neuroscientists study the neurons in those brains because it's a very simple system. And what they found is that that these tiny little brains, which are the size of a pinhead, like really minute, also have head direction cells. So there are also these cells that become active when, when the head faces a particular way. So this is very ancient system that evolved a very long time ago hundreds of millions of years ago it's very fundamental
1: okay so when we talk about uh navigating where humans navigating um there are different ways that people navigate you know some people hold hold a map and have to have the map turned around facing in the direction they're traveling and some people don't need to do that and some people like to see a big map which gives them a sense of the whole journey and some people see a small map. Do, we, ha, do, do those behaviours sort of connect to the different types of cell in the brain or, or is it just a, a different thing?
2: I, I think they probably do although the, the exact connections are still being worked out but I mentioned this other system the striatum Um, And that supports a kind of navigation that we call route navigation, which is the the kind where you don't have a global sense of where everything is, but you know the the route that you want to take. You know, for example, that you need to go down to the end of the road and then turn right and then turn left at the lights and and so on and so on. Um, And individuals, there's there's a kind of a natural variability in um, whether people prefer to navigate that way or prefer to navigate using... Um, what we call a map-like strategy where you have a, a kind of a global sense of where everything is and you know the direction that you want to go. And the route kind of follows on from that. So some people are instinctively route-based navigators and some people are ex- instinctively map-based navigators. And um, most people, when they're confronted with a map, will like to turn it around so that it's what we call the head up, which means that the, um, the top of the map lines up with the direction you're facing so that the map and the real world are in alignment. Um, But a subset of people, around 25% of people, um, prefer north up, so they prefer all of the maps to always have north at the top. And these people are probably um, slightly more inclined towards map-based navigation, so they, they like to kind of look at the map. They know by looking at the map because north is up and and, and is always up when they look at it, they can kind of form a global picture of where their destination is. And then they can do the rotation in their minds that lets them adapt that to the direction in the real world that they happen to be facing. So they can do this kind of mental rotation without having to rotate the map physically. Um, So, I mean, it all boils down to um, trying to align what we call reference frames. So you've got um, the direction that you're facing in the real world and the direction that you're facing on your map. And you want to somehow get those things in alignment so that you can take the destination that's on your map and translate that into the real world. And exactly how people do that alignment is the thing I think that distinguishes people. And almost certainly involves the the head direction system and probably other parts of the brain too.
1: So to translate this into sort of mapping technology terms, people who prefer route-based navigation are going to be using effectively the directions that you get from Google Maps or something like that. Go this way, go that way, go the other way. People who use map-based navigation are going to be more comfortable opening out a large paper map, looking at where they want to get to on the map, and then sort of just working out and seeing the whole route as a picture and knowing... I've got to head roughly due east. And if I wait, go off route slightly, I can get back on route because I know which way I'm meant to be heading. That's um, right,
2: that's right. And that nicely highlights the advantage of map-based navigation, which is that it is kind of resilient. You know, if you, if you wander off the path, you can find your way back because you've still got your global sense of where you're trying to go. Whereas if you're using um, route-based navigation and you, get, you wander off the path, then you're a bit stuck. On the other hand, route-based navigation is a lot easier. It requires less mental effort, um, and which I think is why the brain sees fit to kind of automate that process wherever possible, so that you can be using your um, intelligence and your cognition to solve other problems, like you know, how do I avoid this lion that's stalking me, or whatever.
1: <laughs> so we're going to now. I've got to do this, and you know I was going to do this at some stage, Kate. Um, there's. The myth that goes around that, uh, that women don't do navigation well, uh, they can't handle maps, and that men are much better at navigation. Um, is there any, when you talked about the people who need heads up and the people who need north up, the people who are route-based navigators and map-based navigators, is there any gender skew to that at all? So there has been some
2: um, some work suggesting that women are more likely to use landmarks when they navigate, and and therefore more likely to prefer route-based navigation. So landmarks being you know the things in the environment yeah. that, that anchor you locally, like yeah. you know the letterbox at the corner or the the shop or or something like that. Um, whereas men are slightly more likely to prefer more distant directional cues, like the, maybe they've noticed the direction of the sun or the, you know, the hills or, or something like that. Um, and so there have been a few studies that sort of seem to support that, and men um, often perform a little bit better on spatial navigation tasks than women do. And there have been some animal studies, in, you know, in, in rats, suggesting that female rats are more landmark-based and male rats are more of distant directional cue based. But um, but these studies, I mean, the problem is that they are very prone to what we call confounds in the experimental design or the selection of participants. And one of the problems with humans is that we all have very different life experiences. For example, um, men tend to drive more than women do. And when you're driving, unless you're using a a sat-nav, you're slightly more... Reliant on on your overall sense of direction, um, so maybe that's why men are more attuned to the the distant directional cues, and women are kind of more likely to be more closer, you know, based to home, and so they're very familiar with the local layout, and so they um, use route navigation more often because they can type of thing. So I think it's still, I think it's still an open question. It's something that I've started to explore because I've started to take my research out of the lab and 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 start to relate it to humans a bit more. Um, So, you know, my reading of the literature is that it's still an open question. It's not not really simple. I mean, it's a great narrative. We all love the story. (laughs) I know. Um, But I'm I'm not 100% sure that science has nailed it yet. So I'd like to leave that question unanswered for the time being.
1: And the anecdotal experience that many of us have with a partner of either gender um, is certainly not enough to give us a clear answer to this no no that's right so looking forwards Kate um what do you see as the next frontiers big things um in the research that you're doing um Um, so I
2: think so I, I think the sort of two um Two directions, if you like. One of them is one of them is going up, and one of them is going down. <laughs> so the going up is um, okay. We've got the place cell system, and that is quite good at um, telling us where we are right now. What we don't know yet is where where is the bigger map stored? Like the part of my brain that knows um, the layout of my house, for example. And, the, you know, the relationship of my house to the street and the street to the city and, and you know, the, all of this nested levels of um, understanding of space. Is that all in the hippocampus or is that um, involving other parts of the brain? So that's one question we haven't really answered yet. And so that I think of that as going up as meaning, you know, what's what's the bigger system that place cells are part of? And then going down is the question of like, what's the mechanics of how place cells come to be active where they are like how um, how does the directional information that's coming in through the head direction system affect the place cells how do the head direction cells know which way the rat is facing a lot of that comes from vision um, but how does it come from vision you know does a head direction cell um, get information about all of the things that the rat is looking at and you know h- how does that all work we are just beginning to explore that um, one of the technological advances that's helping with that is that people have figured out how to create virtual reality for rats and mice. Um, <laughs> what,
1: so do they can... go around with little goggles and helmets?
2: <laughs> that's actually, I think that's going to be the next step in the in the development of this technology. That would that would be great. But for now, it's um, it's what we call head fixed, which means that the animal is is held um, immobile so that it it can't move its head. But um, it's then shown. Pictures, so so it can run. It's it's under its feet are resting on a little kind of treadmill thing, so it can run and feel the ground pass beneath its feet. And as it's doing that, um, video screens make the the image of the world pass in front of its eyes. And so the idea is that the animal thinks it's running, you know. Wow. Um, so it's running along, and if it runs to the right place, it stops. It'll get food, and you know they learn this really quickly, and they they look as though they know. What they, where they are, it, it, it's, you know, the assumption is that that's what's happening. Um, but because they're head fixed, it means that we can do some complicated and clever things. You know, for one thing, we can control exactly what they can see, um, or we can, um, we can see what they're seeing. Um, and we can look at the activity of brain cells under a microscope and, and things like that. So that we can see hundreds and hundreds of cells at once instead of just a few. So it's a really important technology. Um and that's also able to kind of link with the you know v r studies that we do in humans a bit more, so there's a whole big effort trying to look at the actual really fine grained details what what are the neurons actually saying to each other what's the information that's being carried and then we need to figure out how is how is new information added and remembered like what's the what's the mechanism for storing the new things that get learned about and that's a that's a big mystery still at the moment.
1: Yeah. So from what you're saying, we haven't got like a complete brain scanner device that we can put over somebody's head to identify which cells are firing where in the brain or anything like that.
2: Not um, not yet, no. So we do have brain scanners and they, um, they're getting more and more fine grained every year so that that technology is constantly developing, but we can still only see a very blurry picture of the activity in the brain of, of a few hundreds or thousands of neurons. We can't see the activity of a single neuron just yet. Right. So um, that's a kind of a holy grail because, you know, the thing about humans is we're so complex. And so it would be really great to be able to see what our neurons are doing. For example, when you ask somebody to imagine a place, we know that the hippocampus will light up, you know, so, so there's activity there, but we don't know the exact pattern of, of the neurons at the single neuron level, and it would be wonderful to be
1: able to do that. So 10 years, 50 years?
2: Oh, I wouldn't like to, I wouldn't like to hazard a guess.
1: <laughs> but, you know,
2: things, things happen so amazingly fast, yeah. that they, you know, it wouldn't surprise me.
1: And all this research, And we understand all of it. When you know, we're gaining more understanding. We don't understand everything. We never will understand everything, I suppose. But what does it? What's the practical applications for this?
2: Um, So there's various practical applications. I mean, one of them is just just curiosity. We like to know how the universe works. You know, we're trying to delve into the you know, the origins of the Big Bang and all of that stuff, you know, we we say it's a practical utility, but the truth is that scientists are just curious. So that's one thing. How do we work? Not just
1: scientists, Kate. You know, I mean, I'm sitting here absolutely fascinated. There are going to be thousands of people out there listening to this podcast afterwards who will also be fascinated. So yeah, yeah. Humans are curious.
2: We, we are. And we've been thinking about the mind for thousands of years. You know, how, how does it how does it happen? It's just a great mystery, but there are also practical applications. For example, you know, understanding all of the mechanics of how neurons um, store information and retrieve it will help us to understand when that goes wrong, and the and the big um, disease where it does go wrong is Alzheimer's disease. So we know that neurons degenerate particularly in the hippocampus, and people lose their um, memory for life events, and it, and it starts with recent life events, but as the de- disease progresses it becomes you know more and more until eventually they've lost everything and so there's this sort of question well you know if we understood how this works could we um could we slow the disease or could we even help them regain their memories is is there ever any possibility that some of that could be gotten back again um and you know understanding how the brain does what it does so the brain is incredibly efficient like you know, we can do things with a few thousand neurons that our fanciest computers still struggle with. I mean, computers yeah. are amazing in many ways, but there's some way that the brain is solving things that we haven't cottoned on to yet. You know, you can show me a face and say, Have you ever seen this person? And I know instantly whether or not I've ever seen that person. I haven't, I'd have to sift through the hundreds of thousands of faces I've seen in my life until I get to the right one. I, I just know, you know, and we still don't know how that happens. So that may open up new forms of information storage for us. Um, And then um, understanding, you know, the mechanics of how we construct our mental map of space, in in theory, could also help us build better spaces. So this is something that I've become quite interested in recently because I find that my experience of the built environment that I'm constantly moving around in is often really bad. You know, I'm really lost and confused and I think why am I lost and confused why have they not built this better <laughs> so that I, I can instantly grasp the layout and then, and it's very easy to remember and to um, know where you are in, in this place at, at any time um, and I think one of the reasons that it's not better is because architects and cognitive scientists haven't ever really communicated about space so one of the things that I've, I'm have kind of a crusade to try and close that gap and, I um, and talk to idea. architects, and yeah. architects talking to cognitive um, scientists and, and seeing if we can, you know, develop some design principles or
1: whatever. I remember just before, about a year before the 2012 Olympics, or maybe a little bit before that, um, there was some work being done by Transport for London because they were, The basic premise was that we were gonna have millions of visitors to London for the Olympics and that lots of people's understanding of London was based on the tube map. And consequently, people would go underground to use the tube to go from Covent Garden to Leicester Square, for example, right? Whereas in fact, it was much quicker to just stay above ground and walk a few hundred yards. And um, they put those obelisks on the street, uh, you know, those columns which Mm. have got a map on them. And on the four sides of the column, the map is orientated for the direction you're facing looking at it. So which, perhaps after everything we've discussed now, sounds really obvious. But it wasn't obvious um, 10, 12 years ago when they first did this. and it had a transformational effect, and you know now that's become virtually commonplace in every city that i' you you travel to you know I've seen them all round round the world when you're travelling you see them um and I guess yeah. that's an example of how the understanding of the way the brain works and perceives place and things like that can link back to the built environment so yeah
2: yeah, yeah that's right and and the reason that those work so well is. That, so getting back to this reference frame mm-hmm. issue, is that the reference frame of the map is aligned with the reference frame of the, the world that's being mapped. So you don't need to do that in your head. So, so that just makes it easier. Um, and that that was a fantastic development, and it works really well for the 75% of people who like the head-up map orientation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, still the north-up people who who are going, I wish they would just put north at top. You know, that's yeah. what I'm used to. But I think... Um, you know, I, th- I think they they did the right thing by by catering to the majority, and 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 the um on the point of the tube map. So that's a really uh, interesting and amusing, but but obviously problematic kind of thing that indeed tourists are using a map where the direction where the distances are are not accurate. So you know the the London Tube map is a topological map where the adjacency relationships are correct, but the distances are completely incorrect. And so you can't really use it to plan a journey on foot. So, um, so there, are, there is um, an organisation that's working to make um, walking maps, so to try and encourage people to walk around London more and find efficient routes. So the idea is it's got not just efficient routes, but also uh, pleasant routes. So if you want to get from A to B, um, you could take the obvious way, or but here's another one that's almost as efficient, but it's much leafier and more pleasant. And you know, and that type of thing. So, um, so, yeah, map making, I think, is tremendously important. Um, but also, you know, um, things like providing directional information. So when I come out of the tube, you know, and I go up the escalator, I get to the concourse and I have no idea which direction I'm facing. So I, I know what direction I want to go. I know that I want to go north out of the tube station, but I don't know which direction north is. Um, and so something simple like that, providing compass information for people, so that they can align the the view of the surroundings that they have at that moment with their mental picture of the of the wider world, just would make things so much easier. So much
1: easier. How many times has the the sat nav said to you head north, and you're going which way is bloody well, which north? Way is north?
2: That's right. Yeah. And the, and so many maps that say you are here, but they don't say. And this is the direction that you're facing.
1: <laughs> uh, so you
2: have to try and work that out yourself, which can,
1: can be. Actually, um, if you use Google Maps um, and you've got the little blue pin which shows you where you are, um, it's got a little halo that sticks out from the pin which does show mm. you the direction. Mm-hmm. The number of people who don't realize that's the case, and when you show it to them and then you say, so start to rotate, and you'll see the little halo. Will spin round with you. And they go, oh, isn't that brilliant? Um, Which I guess is an interface problem because it's been there for ages because they recognize that people wanted to know which way they were facing. But still, loads of people who use the map don't recognize um, that that's what that little cone means.
2: Yeah, yeah. It took me a very long time um, myself to to discover. Someone had to point that out to me. Um, but I, it's also quite difficult to see if you if you have any type of visual impairment. Mm-hmm. So something I'd really like um, to see is some slightly more accessible technology like that for people, um, you know, for example, with, with cataracts who don't have good contrast sensitivity and, and find the phone really difficult to see. You could so one thing that I think would be a really awesome app to have is is just um, a big arrow that points in the direction of your destination. Yeah. <laughs> so and you plug you know, into it, I want to go to Piccadilly Circus, and then you just look at your phone, and there's an arrow pointing in the direction of Piccadilly Circus, and, and you, you're left to find your own route, um, But, and you might wander down streets and sort of take wrong turns and so on, but you always know where your final you know d- direction should be. I just think that would be a fantastic resource. And, Somebody's done that
1: guess. for cyclists, and they've made a little thing which you can put on your handlebar, and you key into it your destination, and all it has is a big arrow on it. Yeah, it's brilliant. And if you turn off the road, you know, you're going down a road and it's a bit busy, so you turn off, and all it does is it keeps correcting you and drawing you back, pointing in the direction um, that you need to go. It's a great idea and really I, Yeah, simple.
2: I, I would love to see a walking, a pedestrian version mm. of that. Yeah. I think it's such a good idea. And especially, you know... Situations like you've arrived in a new city and you want to explore, but you don't want to lose the direction back to the hotel or something.
1: Yeah, it would be fantastic. (laughs) It would be very useful. Kate, I said that we'd probably have 30 minutes. We're way, way past 30 minutes. We could go on talking about navigation and location for ages. It's been an enormous pleasure having you on. Um, I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have learned as much as I have. Um, And... If people want to get in touch with you, want to learn a little bit more about this, um, how can they follow what you do? Um, I'm trying to think of the various
2: various formats. So my lab webpage um, has a sort of a, um, a kind of an outline of my research. So if you Google Jeffrey Lab UCL, that will take you to the lab webpage. For people who are... Um, Sort of interested at a slightly more professional level in navigation, um, I've created a um, a group for specialists. So so it's um, a special interest group within the Royal Institute of Navigation. It's called Cognav, C O G N A V, meaning um, cognitive navigation, and it's trying to get academics and um, navigation professionals from industry to to kind of you know have a common platform for for interaction, and we have a monthly webinar. So, um, which we publicise on the website and also on Twitter. And I'm also just really happy to be emailed if people want to meet and chat. So
1: so. we'll put links to Cognav and to the Jeffrey Laboratory at UCL um, in the show notes so that people can find them there and get in touch with you. Kate, once again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed our conversation too
1: great
0: thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GeoMOP podcast hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any um, suggestions for topics that we should uh, cover in the future you can get the show notes over on the website which is at thegeomop.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. Um, you can also of course follow us on Twitter where our handle is Geomob. Um, you can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Freifogel. Um, you can check out Mapery at Mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and, of course, seeing you at a future Geomop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.